Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess, or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas, from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167, or send a voice memo to radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time, call us at 617-249-3167 or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from, and thank you. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Julia would always say, you can do whatever you want, just no pasta salad. And we went through three caterers because... Pasta salad kept turning up, and Julia was serious about that. But it was so wonderful to really get to know her and to see that she is exactly the same person when the camera is not on. That was Dory Greenspan, world-renowned cookbook author, including her latest offering, Dory's Cookies. If you're interested in a free baking lesson as well as lessons learned from Julia Child, stay tuned because Dory answers all my questions. But first, it's time to head back to the kitchen at Milk Street to check in with Raina Javeri about this week's recipe. Raina, how are you? I'm well, Chris. Hi. So we're taking a little trip to Georgia, not down south, but <laughs> Georgia. And uh, we've done a lot of chicken soups here. And it's one of those recipes where you can tell a lot about where you are in the world by how they make chicken soup because everybody makes chicken soup. This one is kind of interesting because it's creamy but doesn't use cream or dairy has a lot of flavor, but it's also silky. It's, it's kind of an unusual recipe, so why don't you tell us about it? Sure. This is um, a traditional Georgian chicken soup called chikithma, 
And it actually, it's great because we don't start with a broth. We got this recipe from Dara Goldstein, who's the author of The Georgian Feast. And we start making this broth by using the dark meat from chicken legs to build body and flavor. I have a confession here. I don't like white meat, so I like this recipe already. You really don't want to substitute white meat. The bones and the collagen from that dark meat adds all the flavor and body to the broth, and it's less apt to dry out. You know, this is one of the great lessons from our work at Milk Street, which is most recipes in the world use water, not stock, because water's cheap. Mm -hmm. And then they flavor the water with the chicken or the vegetables, and so you make your own stock, and it just seems like it makes a lot of sense. It's efficient and it's much easier, I think. So we use that method here. We use the dark meat to build that broth, and then we take out the meat, we shred it into small bite-sized pieces, and add it back into the soup. And the other thing we do to build flavor into that water is to flavor it with whole bunches of dill and cilantro stems, also a head of garlic, which we've come to love here at Milk Street, um, cinnamon, coriander, and bay leaves. And of course, we're going to add some black peppercorns and red pepper flakes for some heat, because you know I like heat. Yeah, but you don't like white meat. So. <laughs> there you go. I don't like heat, and I do like white meat. Uh, so this has six egg yolks in it, and I have to say, when I first heard about the recipe, I was a little put off. It sounds like a lot of fat to it. But it turns out it's a very lively, bright, vibrant soup. So explain how that works. So the trick here, Chris, is that we're using six egg yolks and we're tempering them with one cup of our cooked broth. And then for some acidity and brightness, we're adding lemon juice as well. And this creates a really velvety, silky soup without adding heaviness that you might get from milk or cream. So one more time, this is a sort of a light, vibrant soup, but we use egg yolks to give it sort of a silky undercurrent. But it's not rich and it's not heavy. It's sort of like a, a great soup, but no cream, no milk. It's just a hint of silkiness. That's right. And for our vegetables, in Georgian soups, they typically skip starches in favor of a few simple vegetables. And we like the simplicity of just onions and carrots. And finally, we add a large quantity of cilantro and dill as a garnish. Thank you, Raina. Now we only have 170 more countries to go to get through, and I'll see you in about four years. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. You can find all of our recipes at MilkStreetRadio.com. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. All of our shows are available on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn, and also at our own site, MilkStreetRadio.com. Now let's take your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton, star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals and author of Home Cooking 101. Okay, Sarah, you ready for a new batch of questions? I sure am. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Sam. Hi, Sam. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Medfield, Massachusetts. It's not quite a stone's throw, but it's close enough. How can we help you? <laughs> well, I'm confident in poaching eggs. And with poached eggs comes the dreaded hollandaise sauce. Um, I finally found a technique with an immersion blender. But the last few times I've made it, the sauce has really quite emulsified. It's kind of leaving me with a thin sauce, like a thin eggnog. And I'm just kind of wondering, I guess, is there a way to save that, or what am I doing wrong? Well, this question is one major reason why I do this show with Sarah. Because, Sarah, you've been trained up on hollandaise, right? Yeah, well, can I instead, Sam, tell you the way I make hollandaise, which really works sure. for me? Sometimes I'll do a white wine shallot reduction. Sometimes I'll just add a little bit of white vinegar, you know, champagne vinegar and lemon juice to some egg yolks. And I put it in a metal bowl that's set over another bowl of barely simmering water. I don't really like the blender method. I've never liked it either, you know, the immersion blender or a regular blender. I just don't trust it. So anyway, I cook the <laughs> eggs till they feel hot to the touch. Okay, okay, so over barely simmering water. Meanwhile, I've cut up whole butter. I don't do melted butter. 
whole butter, because what whole butter has that clarified butter doesn't have or melted butter that separates out is milk solids. And milk solids help to not let the hollandaise get too oily. So I cut up whole butter into like little cubes. And when the egg yolk mixture, which is light and fluffy because you've added some liquid to it, the vinegar, the lemon juice, some salt and pepper, um, maybe some shallots, you've got that all in there and it's light and fluffy. And you start throwing in like three or four cubes at a time and you whisk it till they're almost melted. And then you add some more and then you add some more and then you add some more. And I've never found that to split. It just works. It's light and fluffy. You're adding water in the form of milk salts. Same time you're adding the butter. It's just fantastic. But the yolk needs to be hot before you add the rest of it. And that's one of the things I was going to suggest with the immersion blender thing. Either the butter was too hot or the egg was too cold or something happened. I don't really know what happened. But if you ever make a hollandaise, no matter how you make it, and it splits so it looks sort of greasy and separates out, You can fix it. You just put into a bowl some hot water, like a couple tablespoons of hot water, and start whisking the split mixture into the hot water. It'll come Mm. back together again. Generally, it got, I think, it's because it got too oily and just separated out. So did you understand my method, or was that too convoluted? No, it's perfect. There's so many different ways to make it, but that's probably one of the most delicious ways I've heard so far. Well, and I would actually start with a little bit of a reduction, take like a quarter cup of white wine and a quarter cup of white wine vinegar and some shallots and reduce it down to a couple of tablespoons with a hefty pinch of salt and then add that to the yolks and start with that. I think you'll be happy. Oh, that sounds great. Thank you guys so much. I'm (laughs) happy. Thanks, Sam. Thank you. You're welcome, guys. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Uh, This is Ellen Latimer. How are you? I'm just fine. How are you? Good. Where are you calling from? I am calling from Edmond, Oklahoma. How can we help you? My question is, growing up, my grandmother, my mother, and now I always peel my mushroom. Wow. And uh, my chef friends never do. And it was just one of those things that I peel mushrooms when I cook with them, but nobody else seems to do that. And I wondered... My mother used to do it, too, you know? You're talking about white mushrooms. Do you do it with cremini as well? Oh, yeah. I do it with all my mushrooms. All your mushrooms. I don't want to wash them because, you know, they get spongy. They get too much fluid. Wiping them off, they're kind of, they've grown in manure, you know, so. Well, they're not so much. They're not anymore. And maybe that is why your mother and grandmother did it. It's because they used to be grown in manure. And boy, you know, why not then peel them? But Yeah, but you still get chunky stuff on them there, too. But I just, you know, it's one of those things that's a habit. If I pick up a mushroom, I'm going to pop out the stem, peel off the skin. Well, nobody should stop you. But you know what? The way I've started washing mushrooms is fill up a bowl with water and throw four or five mushrooms in at once and just sort of womp them around and get them out, put them in a strainer or put them on paper towel, and that cleans them perfectly fine. It's not necessary to peel them. But I think if you're happy peeling them, you should peel them. The one exception, and I don't peel them, but I do get rid of the gills, is a portobello. Those the big black inside there. Yeah, because yeah, that will stain expect. anything you cook. Yeah. And they get sort of slimy. So I always remove the gills. I use a grapefruit spoon to remove them. So neither one of you peel your mushrooms? No, absolutely And you really don't have to. Don't have a reason why. No, there's no reason anymore. I mean, certainly you want to wash them because you don't want, you know, little bits of whatever it is in your food. I was just curious, and I've asked many, many, I have many chef friends, and and I'll ask them, so do you peel your mushrooms now? Why? I don't know. I just don't. I just clean them. Yeah. Your situation is a holdover from the old days. You know what? If you get old enough and experienced enough, you always end up like, if it makes you happy, just do it. Yeah. Chris, do you peel your mushrooms? No, I don't. When I was growing up, I was taught that a little bit of 
germ was good for you. Well, actually, that's, uh, and yeah. it's true. It's right? really true. Never hurt. It's good for you. It's good yeah. for it you. Is good for it you. is good for you. It's just that one of those silly questions. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks, 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 thanks for Ellen. calling. That thanks, great. Ellen. Thanks. Great question. Thank you very yeah. much. Okay. Pleasure. This is Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. If you'd like your cooking questions answered, give us a ring anytime, 1-855-4-BOWTIE or 855-426-9843. You can also email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Patrick from Phoenixville, Pennsylvania. So how can we help you? Well, I wanted to ask you about oysters. Okay. Uh, I'm originally from Minneapolis, and I've been on the East Coast for a few years now. And I like taking advantage of all the seafood that's out here, especially oysters. I'm sure you can understand that they weren't readily available fresh in the Midwest. So I tried shucking some the other day, and, and fragments of the shell were going everywhere, and the shells are cracking in half, and it was really a nightmare. It, it took me about an hour to get through a dozen oysters. Uh, there were a little piece of the shell in there, so it was all gritty. I figured there has to be a better way, and thought maybe you could help me. What's the trick? I'll give it a shot just because my first job ever out of cooking school was at the Harvest Restaurant in Cambridge here. And um, my job at night was to open oysters and clams, and I was terrible at it. But I got better at it. And what I learned is, A, you got to have the right knife, and B, you've got to use leverage. You don't just jam the knife in. You have to sort of pop it one direction while you're sort of pushing down on the rest of the oyster with your other hand. It's a little bit hard to describe. So you hook the tip of the of the knife under where the hinge is. Where the hinge is. Yeah. And then you sort of press down. You don't jam in. You press down at that hinge. You take the handle of the knife down away from the oyster and then hold the oyster firmly, even maybe press a little bit. It's sort of like you're popping it open. Chris, do you want to elaborate? Yeah, the other thing that's helpful is to get a kitchen towel and make sure it's a little damp and put the oyster on it and then fold the towel over the top. And as Sarah said, you press down on the oyster. It should not be a flexible blade. It should be a very stiff blade, I think, and get it right at the hinge and then press down. Right. It's like anything else. It's like getting good with a knife. But my guess would be, Patrick, from what you said, that you're probably just trying to jam it in. You have to be more tactical and sort of do a pivot thing. Are you wiggling it in as you go, or are you, you can wiggle, ga- gradually pressing? You may need to wiggle it in, because it may not just go in, but wiggle it in a teeny bit until you feel a little bit of purchase, and then start to put pressure on the handle so that the tip part is sort of coming up. Can I ask a okay. question, Sarah? So did you put it in exactly at the hinge or by to, the to, side of the by hinge? By the side of the hinge. Yes, by the side of the also, hinge. Also, very yeah. important point. Yeah. I mean, still in the hinge, but not dead on. Right. This is one time when radio is just failing us, We should Chris. do TV. Yes, I'm sorry about that. It a little harder. But I'll give it a try. Thank you, for, thank you for your advice. And do be careful. Keep your hand covered. I have scars from opening oysters because I was stupid like well, that. They, they do make a metal glove, yeah. which is not a bad idea. But keep doing it. You'll get great. And the good thing about oysters is they're so healthy and wonderful. Anyway, okay. thanks for calling. Thanks, Give Patrick. Me a shot. Thank you again. Okay. Appreciate it. Yeah. Okay. Bye-bye. You're listening to Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. After the break, I speak with Dory Greenspan, a world-renowned baker, cook, and writer. We'll talk shop about cookies and the joys of cooking with Julia Child. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time to talk to Dory Greenspan. She's a world-renowned cookbook author and has worked with Pierre Hermé, David Ballou, and also Julia Child. She began her baking career by getting fired. Uh, I love this little anecdote. Uh, you worked at the Soho Charcuterie 
many years yes. ago, and you were fired for messing around with one of their signature recipes. What recipe was it? It was the chocolate whiskey cake. Actually, it was from Simka Beck's book, Simka's Cuisine. Mm-hmm. I think it was the Doris. So it had whiskey. It was a chocolate cake. It had whiskey. And I think it had walnuts, ground walnuts. And my job was to make that cake, four of them, for lunch every day. And I got bored. And so instead of soaking the raisins in whiskey, I soaked prunes in Armagnac. And instead of putting walnuts in the cake or whatever was supposed to be in it, I put pecans. And I, you know, I was brand new. I'd never worked in a kitchen before. And so I never told anybody I was doing this. I just sent the cake upstairs for service. Hmm. And at the, yeah, at the end of the day, I got called in by the owner. And she said, that was some cake you sent up today. And I said, did you like it? And she said, that's not the point. You're fired. She's And I was fired for creative insubordination. I love that term. If you're going to get fired, I love that's, it now. that's, that's a, yeah, many years later. <laughs> but I, if, creative insubordination, I, I'll have to remember that. Uh, let's talk about pie dough for a moment. Um, you know, we've all been through the process of trying to figure out how to make the best pie dough. Do you, in all of your tests over the years, as, as you've been cooking and baking, do you have a solution you like, uh, a way to approach it, or do you just a, a classic French recipe? So I have recently done something I think is kind of daring, but it makes such good sense to me, and it's really helped me with pie crust and tart shells. So I make my dough in the food processor. I've been doing that for years. I find that for me, that's the way to keep the ingredients cold, get the dough together quickly. But what I used to do was when the dough was finished, I'd make a disc and I would chill it, and then I would roll it out. These days, I roll dough right after it's made, Hmm. when it's soft and really pliable. I do this with cookie dough, pie dough, tart dough. So I take the dough out of the mixer or the food processor, and I roll it between parchment paper, and then I chill it. Oh, boy. You're one of those. Okay. I've had this fight for years about— Will you continue to speak to me? I will, but I'm not a roll it between parchment paper. A lot of people do. I'm more the the free-form— pie roller, and I do put it in the fridge for an hour. But if you want to save time and um, if you have the parchment paper, it does work, and it's easy to do. Well, may, may I just want to pipe in and say okay. that if, you, if you're if you taking the dough straight from the mixer, yep. you have to use parchment or wax true. paper. That's true. You're right. Um, so <laughs> uh, what, what about natural cane sugars? I, I go to a place here in Cambridge and buy my sugar, and that's pretty much what they have available. And I found it actually doesn't always work the same as white granulated sugar, especially when making a caramel. Are all sugars pretty much interchangeable or not? Mm, I don't think so. You've done far more tests than I. I mean, I use regular granulated sugar in the hopes that it's an ingredient that everyone can find. But I recently had an experience. Someone wrote to me and said they were having trouble making a caramel with super fine granulated sugar. Hmm. That that it it caramelized a lower temperature. And I haven't had a chance to play with that, but I'm using primarily ordinary supermarket granulated sugar. 
Uh, let's talk about some of the cookies. Obviously, it's a cookie book. The one that really attracted my attention, one of them was the World Peace Cookies from PRMA. Uh, could you just describe what those are? Actually, I can't figure out why this cookie is so remarkable. It's a cookie with cocoa and all-purpose flour, and it has a fair amount of fleur de sel in it, so harvest, you know, French sea salt. Right. And it has chunks of chocolate, dark chocolate. One of the pleasures of this cookie is to chop chocolate and have different size pieces so that every bite is a surprise. The cookie bakes, it's kind of temperamental in that, well, not temperamental, but it's unpredictable. It doesn't always look the same, but it always tastes fabulous. I make it as a slice and bake, as a log. And it needs to bake at 325 degrees Fahrenheit. Bake it at 350, and the cookie is totally off. Hmm. And it bakes to a texture that's sandy. You know, sable means sandy in French. And you really get that with this cookie. It's got, if I say it's a little gritty, I want to be able to say that it's gritty in the best possible way. But it's also chewy. It's, I've never tasted another cookie like it. So it's chocolate and salty and a little caramelly from the brown sugar. And then it has those chunks of chocolate. It's just a remarkable cookie. Man, you're a good salesperson. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Almost all cultures have cookies of one kind or another. There's some Moroccan semolina cookies here. Uh, Is is there a a particular cookie from a, a culture that most people don't know about you particularly like? I was given a recipe from a friend of mine's mother in Australia, and I looked at the recipe and thought, this will never work. It's Natasha's mum's fruit and walnut bread. And it's missing all of the ingredients that make a cookie. And you think this will never be anything. And it comes out soft and chewy. And you cut it into long fingers, kind of a cross between bar biscotti, but it's not second baked. And I think that's one of the most unusual cookies I've seen. Cookies are surprising. I think everything that we find, as I was working on the book... I felt as though the cookies made their own universe and that everything that we know in sweets, we can find in cookies. Well, that's a universe that I'd like to live in. You know, (laughs) if you're going to pick a universe, that's a pretty good one. Um, Let's argue about vanilla extract. Uh, In cookies in particular, most people in a blind taste test, like in a shortbread cookie, would pick imitation because... It has a higher percentage of vanillin, the major active ingredient. Uh, What do you think? You think you don't really care under all conditions you want the real thing? Or does imitation vanilla have a place in your uh, baking cabinet? I, I use a pure vanilla extract that has vanilla pulp in it as well. So it's extract with pulp. And... I love it so much I would use it as perfume, Hmm. and I love the flavor, and I found myself using more vanilla than I have in the past. I'm finding it to be a wonderful base flavor to support 
and enhance other flavors. And I'm using it more than I used to. What about stuff that we all used to do or Julie used to do, like making puff pastry, for example? That's not something the typical French cook would do either because they go to the patisserie to buy dessert. Are are there things that, you know, made sense in 1965 or 1975 that we're just not going to do anymore? You know, I don't make puff pastry anymore. I used to, and I was so proud of myself when I learned to make it. When I learned to make puff pastry, I made it every day for two weeks so that I would really know how to make it. I can't remember the last time I did that. You, you mentioned the French very often will mix something store-bought with something homemade. In other words, there's not this, you know, it has to all be homemade. Is that an attractive concept for you, is to combine those two things? Yes and no. I'll buy ready-made puff pastry. When I'm in in Paris, I'll buy ready-made meringue. I might even buy a berry coulis ready-made. Those things are not really available to us as easily in America. I like, like, Biscoff cookies. I might crush them and use them in a crust, or I might use them on the top of a custard or a panna cotta or something like that. But... I get such pleasure out of making things by hand that, except for puff pastry, which, as I said, I don't do anymore, I'll usually go straight through homemade. Uh, Keeping brown sugar moist, do you just keep it in the fridge? Do you use those little pottery bears that you soak in water, or you just don't worry about it? When we were shooting the pictures for Dory's Cookies, I bought 25 pounds of brown sugar, and... When we were finished with this, we had a bunch of mini marshmallows left over from the sweet potato pie bars that were in the book. And somebody in the kitchen said, let's put the mini marshmallows in this bag of brown sugar. It's now over a year later, and I'm still using that brown sugar. Yep. I'm also picking mini marshmallows out of dough <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, because it gets stuck in the in the brown sugar. But that's been a great way to keep brown sugar. Um, anything about dealing with egg whites, about how you beat them, um, things you add to them, any tricks for people at home? Well, you know, the, the standard. Separate your eggs when they're cold because that's when they're easiest to separate. But let the egg whites come to room temperature before you start to whip them because they'll accept more air that way. I always add, if I'm doing a a meringue, I'll add salt and maybe a squeeze of lemon juice, um, just a little acid, a tiny little bit of vinegar or cream of tartar to whip them. Right. But the temperature makes a big difference. And just going back to something Julia told you, quote, Julia told me to always wear lipstick, and I do. So that was your that was your 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 takeaway from all those years of working with Julia Child. Great. Actually, not only did Julia tell me always to wear lipstick, but she took me to Walgreens and bought me the lipstick that she wore, which was 99 cents at the time. And it was like a, it was the lipstick version of a mood ring. You put it on. I think it, I can't remember. Maybe it was green in the tube. And you put it on, and it turned whatever color it felt it should turn on your lips. Mine turned a hideous orange and lasted for 24 hours. Do you have any stories about working with Julia and about some of the recipes? It was such a... 
Hey everyone, I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first. And that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. Remarkable experience for me. So this was the book that was to accompany Julia Child's PBS series, Baking with Julia. And so there were 26 bread bakers and pastry chefs who came to Julia's house on Irving Street in Cambridge. And we shot there. And so we would have it was this great rotation of chefs. We would shoot in the morning. And while we were shooting, somebody would be down in the basement prepping for the following morning shoot. And we would all meet for lunch. And on a nice day, we shot during the summer. We would be outdoors and... The lunches were catered, and Julia would always say, you can do whatever you want, just no pasta salad. (laughs) And we went through three caterers because (laughs) pasta salad kept turning up, and Julia was serious about that. When I first met Julia, the very first time, it was at an event at BU, and we all, everybody who had been part of the event was having dinner together, and Julia said, sit with me. And I said, of course. And during dinner, she said, have you ever seen the Dan Aykroyd Saturday Night Live skit, you know, where Dan Aykroyd imitates me? I remember that, yeah. Well, I said, Julia, I think I'm probably the only person in America who's never seen it. And she stood up and did the entire routine. (laughs) So I got to watch Julia imitating Dan Aykroyd imitating Julia. It was, she had just the best sense of humor. She had a spectacular sense of humor, but she was also very serious about teaching. I mean, she took the teaching very seriously. I remember Jeff Drummond was her producer on this and many other shows. And he told me that when she took a bite of, remember that brioche tart in that book? Oh, I remember it With that so white sauce, well. the secret sauce. It was Nancy Silverton's recipe. And, and Jeff said to me, when she bit into it, she started tearing up. And at first yes. he thought it was because it was too hot and she'd burned her mouth. But then she re- he realized that it was a taste memory. And it was so good that Julia, you know, we just went back in time. And, and that's, I guess, food at its best, right? That just touched her so and it brought back all of France for her. I remember one day she called me and she said, 
do you have a bread machine? And I said, nope. She said, I think you should have one. I said, Julia, I'm never going to use a bread machine. And she said, that's the wrong attitude. She said, you should get a bread machine because you have to be curious about what it's like and what you can do with it. I'm getting a bread machine this morning and you will too. And I did. Julia just wanted to know everything. She was curious about the world. Julia said to me one day when we were working, aren't we lucky? And I thought, well, I'm pretty lucky. I'm here working with you. And she said, we're lucky because we work in food. And that means that we'll always be learning something new. For the rest of our lives, we'll learn. That was Julia. That was Dory Greenspan, baker and cookbook author, most recently, Dory's Cookies. Chatting with Dory Greenspan reminded me that famous people are rarely what you imagine. Julia Child, imitating Dan Aykroyd, imitating Julia, is not what the casual viewer of Julia's TV shows might expect, or Julia buying 99-cent lipstick from Walgreens. What is not hard to imagine is Julia saying, aren't we lucky? Yes, Julia, we are. All of us who work in food, who cook for a living, who get to argue about recipes all day, we are, in fact, the lucky ones. And as a Buddhist monk I once met said, quote, enjoy your luck, nothing lasts forever. Right now, it's time to talk with wine expert Stephen Muse about why riper, more expensive vintages aren't necessarily better. I'm here at Formaggio Kitchen in Cambridge with Stephen. Stephen, how are you? Good, Chris. And uh, this is the time of year uh, for red wine, I guess, because we have four glasses of red out on the counter. Well, it sort of is the time, I think, when some people begin to drink a little more red than white, maybe. But I thought it was time that you and I had a little chat about something that I think our listeners are both interested in and kind of wonder about. And that is vintage variation, right? Okay. Vintage variation. Variation in wine from one year to the next. They, you know, our listeners here, experts talk about this all of the time. And it's true that the world of wine is a little bit like General Motors, you know, that the whole world rolls out uh, new models um, every year. And so we want to talk a little bit about how that comes about. And then we're going to taste some wine and see if it matters and see if it matters. All right. Well said. So first of all, what do we mean when we talk about a vintage? You know, it's one of the sort of glories and wonders of wine that it's so excruciatingly sensitive to every kind of environmental influence. And since the weather is never perfectly the same in a given vineyard or region from year to year, and we see that reflected in every glass of wine that we taste, but we don't always get a chance to taste two wines from back-to-back years from the same property, and that's what we're going to do today. That's why I'm the luckiest man in America, because <laughs> I'm here to do that. So uh, we have two glasses to start. Okay, we have two glasses of red wine. Now, this wine, uh, its nickname is Le Pijoulet. It's made in the Vaucluse in Which Provence is? in the south of France. Okay. It's a typical blend of red grapes, cocktail of red grapes from that part of the world. So you've tasted wine number one, and what did you think about that? Nice little wine, isn't it? Yes, I, I like this wine very much. Yeah, it's about $20. It's a nice wine. It has some nice fruit to it. It's lively. It's, um, yeah, it, it's very drinkable. It's very pleasant. Um, it's, a, it's a happy fellow. Yeah, it is a happy fellow. So this is the 2014 was the first wine that you tasted. And now you're going to follow that up with 
the 2015, same wine. So the second one's not as fruity. It's, it's, it's more alcohol. It's a more serious wine. But I actually prefer the liveliness of the first. Yeah. First of all, I agree with your analysis of the two wines. 2015 is a warmer vintage, producing riper wines, more sugar in the grapes. That will mean a little bit higher alcohol, typically, depending on how the winemaker handles everything, of course. A little more concentration and weight uh, in the wine. Now, typically, the wine press tends to like these kinds of warmer vintages, but we're going to circle back on that. Please go on to the next pair. These are Chianti Classico from uh, Monte Bernardi, one of my favorite Chianti estates. You're tasting, first of mm -hmm. all, the 2013 and then the 14. Yeah, the first wine was softer, a little fruitier, livelier. The second one, uh, more alcohol, I thought, and, uh, you know, a more serious wine. Yep. Again, maybe because I'm not a very serious guy. <laughs> I, like, I like the first one better. Yeah. So, okay, that's well, where I am. Yeah, I mean, again, I think in this part of the world, in central Italy, 2014, in most cases, produced uh, a little riper style of wine, just because of the conditions uh, of the year. Uh, it, there is one half of one degree of alcohol more in the second wine, which you seem to be able to notice. Oh, you notice it, yeah. I mean, I think the wines are both delicious. They're beautifully made. But, yeah, I agree that in both cases I like the wine that's a little lighter and fresher. So this is what I want to come around to say about this. The wine press, God bless them, is always looking for something new and exciting to, you know, get their readers uh, jacked up about. And one of those things is a blockbuster vintage. Now, we don't have anything here that qualifies as a blockbuster vintage, but pretty typically the press is always interested in touting warmer years. Warmer years, riper grapes, more alcohol, bigger wines, more impact, and more drama. And I think we've seen today in the tasting that there's a trade-off involved. Yes, you get a little more richness, but you lose a little freshness. So it doesn't mean necessarily that the riper, more touted vintage is necessarily going to give you a more drinkable wine. And I also think that when you bring them to the table and you're serving them with food, sometimes that little livelier, fresher style of wine is ultimately more appealing. So I think we're agreed. We like the kind of livelier, fruitier wines, maybe from the uh, imperfect season. Mm -hmm. So if I go into a wine shop or restaurant, so. What, what's the takeaway? How can I use this information about vintages so I can actually end up with a wine right. I'm going to like? Well, I think really this is what I would call <laughs> a self-defense tactic, Chris. It's good for our listeners to know that bigger vintages don't always make a more drinkable wine. It's as simple as that. So when the wine person comes over and says the 2014 was great, you say, you have the 2013? You have that lean, skinny, yeah. disagreeable vintage. <laughs> that really yes, lousy that's right. season. Yeah. Thank you very much, Stephen. Okay, Chris. After the break, more of your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals and author of Home Cooking 101. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, we're going to take some calls with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah, are you ready? I am so ready. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Victoria. I'm in Providence, Rhode Island. How can we help you in the kitchen? 
Well, I make mushroom soups, and I noticed that it wasn't acting the same way that it had been for me. And I don't know if it was I wasn't paying as much attention to what I was doing, but the mushrooms would not release their water in the way that they used to when I would heat them up to a certain temperature. And so I was wondering, is it something I was doing, or was it what I suspected that either the mushrooms were too thick or that I had put them in after I put in bacon and onion, and that that bacon and onion interfered with the mushrooms? Well, onions are full of liquid, and my guess is the temperature of the pan was much lower because you had the bacon and the onions. And also you have, instead of hitting the hot metal of the pan— they're hitting some liquid, they're hitting the onions, they're hitting the bacon, so you're getting much less heat. And mushrooms need a lot of heat to release their liquid, right, Sarah? What kind of mushrooms were they? I was cheating, and I bought the pre-sliced ones. They were white. How did it taste in the end? It was fine. Well, now, you know, <laughs> it was fine. It was good. I like the mushrooms not to feel kind of rubbery. And they were probably a little more chewy than I like. You know, I wonder, since they were pre-sliced, if they might have lost some liquid. Were they oh, pre-sliced so, under both cases? or? So I tried it again just recently, and I used the brown crimini mushrooms, and I sliced them myself. They were much thinner, um, and they seemed to act better. So They gave huh. up more liquid. They did, it's, but I didn't bring them that far. And I still, you know, was in a rush, so I still threw them in with the baked onions. But they did release some liquid, but they didn't get golden brown, you know, crispy parch in that liquid. They just cooked well. Well, do you so, want to get them golden brown? Yeah, I had. I used to do that. I used to put them in with just butter and get them to release their liquid and then go down to like a, a fairly Til they were brown. golden brown. And that's and then, how you like them. That's how I like them in the soup. Well, there's definitely uh, not going to yeah. happen with onions yeah, in the just pan. D- don't put anything okay. else in the pan except yeah. the butter. Okay. But, yeah. yeah, I think that's probably the, it right there. You know what okay. you might want to also do just to up the flavor of the mushroom soup? Have you ever worked with dried mushrooms or dried porcini? Yes, a little bit, but not often because I didn't know how old they were. Oh. <laughs> My father would dry them for me. My father would give them to me. He would, give and you, I mean, he would dry them himself? But yeah, he's a mushroomer. Yeah. <gasps> yeah. I wow. know. I know. Let me just say, dried mushrooms are wonderful because they give off this terrific... Talk about liquid and a base for, you know, a soup or a sauce. So you need to rinse them when they're dry just to get rid of any extra dirt and then put them with some liquid. It could be stock, it could be wine, and bring it up to a, you know, temperature to a boil and then turn it off and let it sit and then strain out that liquid and use it. And it, it just is like, oh my God, it's essence of mushroom. Any dried mushroom will do the same for you, but porcini in particular. I recommend okay. that as your, part of your liquid the next time you make your mushroom soup. Okay. I'll definitely start doing that and I'll look into that. Great. Okay. Well, thank you very much. I yeah. really appreciate Pleasure. it. I love thank listening you. to the show. Thanks, thank you. you. Thanks. Bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Norma. Hi, Norma. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Wayne, New Jersey. Okay. How can we help you? Okay. Well, I have your magazine, and in it it had a foolproof pie crust. Uh-oh. And I don't I, like the tone of this. Or this is like... Dun, dun, this, dun. this sounds like, and I made it, and... And what yes, happened, and what happened? Norma? Well, I thought I did everything correctly, and it shrunk. It was beautiful when I put it in the oven. It looked really terrific. I had the edges all tucked under and made a design on it. It was beautiful. When I baked it, it shrunk. I have a few questions. You used aluminum foil and pie weights, I assume? Yes. And the pie weights came up how far in the crust? 
I had it all the way to the okay. edge of my card. That's good. Were these ceramic weights or what kind of weights were they? No, this was just like a fat bean. That's fine. Okay. This is three seventy-five. You were yes. Okay. And how long did you bake it before you took the foil and beans out? I did everything I thought according to the directions. Well, there are two things I found okay. which are helpful. One is make okay. sure lift up the foil, uh, open the oven, lift up the foil. Mm-hmm. And don't take the foil off until the crust is really set. It okay. shouldn't be soft. It should really start to set. Uh, okay. So if you only go 20, 21 minutes, sometimes the crust isn't set. So I would give it a little more time. The other All thing right. I do, which mm-hmm. I think is helpful, is I put it in the refrigerator once you've rolled it out and fitted it to the pan for 40 yeah. minutes. And then oh. I put it in the freezer for 20. Oh, okay. And I it's find just, that helps. Uh, that, that helps. That's very helpful. Or... If you have time, do it the night before and let it sit. But 40 minutes in the fridge and 20 in the freezer. You're right. We did have sometimes trouble with it shrinking, and we found that we didn't have enough weights in it, which you obviously did it right. The other problem we found was glass pie weights conducted heat too well, and that turned out to be a problem. Okay. Now I used uh, beans. But make sure that the crust is really set before you take the foil off, and that should solve the problem. I mean, I don't know the recipe, but I just have a few questions. Is this a butter dough, all butter? Yes. Was there supposed to be an edge on the top? Is that what you lost, or just that it shrunk? I lost the edge. It shrunk in. It shrunk in. And how long did you let it rest after you rolled it out? Well, it said to put it in the freezer for 10 minutes. And that was it? I think you need more resting time. I think that's the only problem with the recipes. There's one other trick I forgot to mention. When you fit a pie crust to a pie plate or pan, push the sides down into the pie plate and go around. So in other words, you're pushing it down because sometimes if the edges are a little stretched when they're sitting in the pan, they'll shrink. Yeah, flour has gluten in it. And when you work it with the butter and everything and then the liquid you add to it, you develop that gluten. And if you bake it right away, it shrinks. Ten minutes is not enough. When you lift up your rolled-out pie dough and you put it in the pie plate, if you just stretch it, you know, push into the corners, it will shrink back even more. You can pre-shrink it, and what you could even do to make sure that it doesn't shrink down so you have a good edge is to leave extra dough hanging out over the top of the pie plate, like even an extra half an inch. And the other thing I was going to say is butter doesn't hold an edge the way, say, Crisco does. Okay, I'm going to try it again. Just more time resting will definitely help. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very yeah, much. Yeah. Thank for you. Okay. Bye bye. This is Christopher Kimball's Mill Street Radio. If you'd like your cooking questions answered, give us a ring anytime. One eight five five four Bowtie, or eight five five four two six nine eight four three. You can also email us at questions at milkstreetradio.com. Hello. Who's calling? Cindy. And where are you calling from? Connecticut. How can we help you? Well, my husband is a vegetarian, but I enjoy the occasional taste of meat. I was wondering, is there any way to get a meaty flavor using just vegetables, cheese, perhaps grains, to make it sort of a meaty flavor? Here's an answer you're not going to (laughs) like. But a lot of people in the world, especially in the East, still use MSG. And MSG is the ultimate umami flavor. Like in Thailand and other places, it's just an accepted ingredient. You don't overuse it, but it's the easiest and quickest way to do it. Other foods that have that flavor, umami, or tomato paste has it. 
Mushrooms. Of course, anchovies, which, of course, are protein. Mushrooms. Um, Mushrooms have it. Soy sauce would have it. Fish sauce, but that's made from anchovies. Worcestershire. Worcestershire. Cheese, like Parmesan, aged cheese has it. So those are all things you could certainly How about tamari sauce? Yes, Yes, tamari. tamari, Yeah. Okay. There's also this other thing, which I've never had, but it's called Maggie seasoning. Yeah. It's a dark vegetable protein-based liquid that gives a meaty taste. Probably has MSG in it. It does. You know, <laughs> of course. Yes. Okay. But you no, know, someone just told me today, a few hours ago, said you can now buy a tube of umami paste. Oh, yeah. No, there's a company and, that makes and it. And they take all those ingredients that are rich in umami and they turn oh. it into like an anchovy paste or whatever, t- yep. you know, a tomato yes. paste. And so you can buy a tube of that. The other thing I was going to say is apparently vegetable burgers have come a long way. And they're really much better than they used to be. They sort of used to taste like sawdust. And now I think they're really quite good. And there's some that are quite meaty tasting. Other thing you can think about is you could make a dish and you could add meat to yours as a topping. And then he could have it without that particular part of the topping, but there'll still be plenty of flavor. You know, of course, we're... Like stir-fried rice, you could have the meat in it and just add it at the end and he doesn't. But the other thing we're not discussing is the obvious, which is tofu or tempeh. Yeah. And tofu, especially when you get the firm tofu and you press it or even freezing it helps too, it can behave very much like meat does in a recipe with a sauce and absorb it and be tasty. Yeah, it's another thought. Well, that's a good idea. That is interesting that it can be a meaty flavor. Oh, it's more that it absorbs a sauce. So if you have a good flavorful sauce, say with mushrooms and soy sauce, which have all that umami, and you put that on, you know, with tofu and press the tofu and or freeze it, and then you'll be a happy camper, I think. Yeah, and think of meat just as a flavoring, and there's a lot right, of dishes a, that'll work for both right, of you. Right, right, yeah. exactly. Not a main course, but I don't not think of it that way. It's anymore. a topping. Yes, yeah. a crouton. It's a garnish. Yes, yes. that's right. That's a what garnish. Yeah. <laughs> okay. okay. All right, Cindy, thank you. Take well, care. thank you very much. Yeah, pleasure. Thanks for calling. Yeah, bye-bye. This is Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. If you'd like your cooking questions answered, the number is one eight five five four bowtie That's 855-426-9843. You can also email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. You can also find our shows on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn, and of course at our site, MilkStreetRadio.com. Right now it's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. This week's Milk Street Basic is how to scramble eggs. Now, most people, especially the French, like to do that over a double boiler over low heat. But here at Milk Streak, we find that high heat is the way to go. So whisk two or three eggs together with a little bit of salt. Heat one tablespoon olive oil in a nonstick skillet over medium heat just until the oil starts to smoke. Add the eggs to the pan. Immediately push the edges toward the middle using a heat-proof spatula. Mix the eggs rapidly using circular motions. And this way, the heat of the oil, it gets much hotter than butter, really turns the water in the eggs to steam. And this produces a quick fluffy plate of scrambled eggs. One last tip. We like to warm our serving plates so the eggs finish cooking gently before serving. This is Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. Right now, it's time to talk to Nigel Lawson about Tuesday night suppers. Welcome to Milk Street. It's very nice to be here. It's Tuesday night. Uh, mm-hmm. You have an hour or less to put dinner on the table. You don't have anything in you know, fancy in the cupboard, uh, what do you do? Well, have I not been allowed to go to the shops in the day? Sure, but nothing ex- extraordinary. Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't know how many fishmongers you have left 
in the States, but we still have fishmongers and I'm a great believer in using fishmongers all their die out. And Tuesday is a wonderful day for fish because, you know, the boats don't go out on Sunday. So there's no fish on Monday and the fishmongers are shut. And so Tuesday is when you get, you know, the freshest catch. And I do quite often do fish tacos on a Tuesday. And I don't do these in a very complicated way and I don't do frying. I put a good good steak of quite solid fleshy white fish. I use hake, which is plentiful around British waters. And I think you probably don't have so much of it, but any firm white fish would do. And I sprinkle it with spices and I just put it in the oven. Teeny bit of oil, spices, put it in the oven. Corn tortillas from a packet, which I will warm up, but that's about it. And then, you know, bits of chopped lettuce, some red onion, which I've macerated in lime juice so it's puce and without that acrid aftertaste and any bits and pieces that I can muster a bit of sriracha sauce in mayonnaise but otherwise I mean I do a salad quite often on Tuesday I have a particular way of poaching salmon um, and I like the wild Alaskan salmon and I put it in a really small pan with some water and whatever aromatics I might feel like. I bring it to the boil. I turn, I turn the heat off. I turn the fish over and I let it stand, these fish steaks, for seven minutes. <laughs> and then I take them out and let them get cool and then flake them up in a salad with some watercress, some avocados, some pumpkin mm. seeds and cloudy apple cider vinegar. And that, I'm afraid, more friends of mine have eaten that on a casual Tuesday night at my house than I would care to say. But then if a thing works, it works. I'll try that. Nigella, thank you very much. Thank you. I leave you with one of my favorite quotes, one that came from a recent interview with Nigella Lawson. Quote, if you feel guilty about pleasure, you don't deserve to have it. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can listen to our weekly shows on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Also on our very own website, MilkStreetRadio.com. That's where you can download each week's recipe. We'll be back next week. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producers Melissa Baldino and Stephanie Stender. Producer Amy Padula. Production assistant Carly Helmetog. Senior audio engineer Douglas Sugarts. Senior audio editor Melissa Allison with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production help Debbie Paddock. Theme music by Two Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egrock. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. This is Christopher Kimball. You may have heard that we just started running international culinary tours. And one trip I am particularly excited about is Istanbul, which is based in part on my recent visit. Along with our partners at Culinary Backstreet's, we put together an itinerary that goes way beyond the Grand Bazaar. This May, we'll visit local neighborhood markets, take a sail up the Bosporus, and harvest vegetables from farms in the city's ancient moats. 
you'll sample Turkish cheeses, flatbreads, pistachios, pomegranate, molasses, and olive oil. And since this is, in fact, a Milk Street trip, you'll use those ingredients in hands-on cooking classes with local families and chefs. There are just three spots left on our May trip, so visit 177milkstreet.com tours. That's 177milkstreet.com tours to claim your spot. Plus, listeners to our radio show save 5% with code Istanbul.